real-life ghost stories. To kick things off this week, I want to say thanks to some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Becky, Mike Temple, Morag Walker-Wesselman, Steph Olson, Jade Van Atta, Michelle Connor, Paul Taylor, Emily Job, Jay, Cassandra and Ava, Reuben Henshaw, Alyssa Shaw, Terry Shannon, Wolf Wearing Wolf Pants, Nancy Mayer, Haley Tompkinson, Zoe Phillips, Diane Brown, Jay Bemi, and Chris Stein. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is The Pale Blue Eye. The Pale Blue Eye was released in 2023. It has 6.5 out of 10 on IMDb and 65% on Rotten Tomatoes. A world-weary detective is hired to investigate the murder of a West Point cadet. Stymied by the cadet's code of silence, he enlists one of their own to help unravel the case a young man the world would come to know as Edgar Allan Poe. So I uh, just want to say before we start that I didn't really know what to expect from this one. Um, it is definitely not a horror film. It's like spooky and a bit eerie and a bit weird, but it's definitely not a horror film. Google lied to me. So if you're looking for a scary film, kiddos, this is not it. This is not, this is not a horror film. It's not scary. With that little tiny mistake aside, uh, don't blame me, blame Google. Let's go into my likes visually. This film is stunning. I loved the landscape. It's set in the Hudson Valley in 1830 and it's winter and it's barren and it's really gothic and the colour palette is like all grey and blue and you really get into that feel of a winter spooky tale. And listen, I was here for it. I loved watching it. It was beautiful. And the introduction to the story is great. So you've got Christian Bale, who is playing this like world weary, moody detective and he's widowed and it's grim and he's investigating this alleged suicide at a military academy and the victim's heart was ripped out. So the heart is missing and they're like, oh, maybe it wasn't a suicide after all. It's great. It's a great opening to the story. There's lots of like suggestions of double crossing and the occult and devil worship. Everyone's a bit weird and mysterious. And everything's just that little bit spooky and you don't really know who to trust throughout the whole story. And it really is a, like a proper star-studded cast. Um, There's loads of faces and names in there that you'll recognise. Christian Bale is really good as the world-weary detective. I'm not a massive Christian Bale fan, but I can appreciate that he is a good actor and I thought he was really good in this. But there is one thing about this film that absolutely blew my mind and that was... I think his name is his name Harry Melling. Harry Melling plays Edgar Allan Poe. And Harry Melling is actually Dudley Dursley from the Harry Potter franchise. So I was looking at him for ages going, is it or isn't it? And it's it's the guy who plays Dudley Dursley. And he is in it because Edgar Allan Poe is in the military academy as a cadet. And Bale's character gets him to help solve the mystery. And honestly, I cannot express how much... I loved his portrayal of Edgar Allan Poe. He was amazing. And I know there's obviously, you know, you learn bits and pieces about writers like Edgar Allan Poe. A lot of who they were tends to be kind of romanticised and there's a lot of guesswork that goes on. So there's no way of knowing like whether or not it's an accurate portrayal. But I thought his portrayal was absolutely stunning. He was eccentric. He was manic. He was lovable. Like I wanted to kind of 
like wrap him up in cotton wool and look after him. He was very aware of his own flaws, of his own shortcomings. There's this great scene where he talks about his experience in the military academy in this really like macho environment and how he just didn't really fit in because of the way he was and who he was and the way he looked and and he oh it really made me emotional it was absolutely gorgeous he was brilliant give that man an oscar oscars if you're listening give him an oscar okay i know it took you a bazillion years to give what's his name leonardo dicaprio an oscar but listen give this man an oscar he was so good as ed gran and paul like i i was completely enamored by him i really really was and that very short list of likes brings me swiftly to the dislikes and I hate to say this but my god this film was boring I mean good god what a cast what a potential for a story but how in the world was it somehow two days long I think it might have been the longest film I've ever seen it was so long and I'm not gonna lie I ended up having to watch it twice because I fell asleep the first time around that was not intentional it was the middle of the day I was so bored I literally fell asleep and had to like go back and watch it again and I oh it was just so long and so boring how can a story about people getting their hearts ripped out Edgar Allan Poe the occult how and and the military and and you know this really sparse barren winter landscape how can how can you make that boring and I'm gonna say something that is really controversial and I'm very sorry in advance for what I'm about to say please don't excommunicate me from the paranormal community so to preface this statement I love Gillian Anderson so much I love her as an actor and I fancy her so much but she is not good in this film she is not good I mean her performance was memorable but it was memorable because it was truly bizarre I I honestly was watching her when she appeared on screen I was like yeah Gillian Anderson's in this I love Gillian Anderson and then I was like oh What's happening, Gillian Anderson? Are you okay? Are you going through something? It was it was a very strange performance. I didn't really understand it. I found that her accent was bizarre, as well as actually quite a lot of the other British actors who were putting on American accents. They weren't great. They weren't great. And on top of that, like I'm I'm not the greatest when it comes to predicting the outcomes of films. Uh, my brain doesn't really engage very well with a lot of things but I guessed the outcome of this pretty early on and I'm pretty dim when it comes to things sometimes so it must have been pretty obvious what the outcome was going to be and somehow despite the fact that I guessed the outcome the story ended up still being really convoluted and there were these major leaps of logic that they just didn't go any way to trying to explain them and yeah just very 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 strange storytelling I thought that just didn't didn't really work I thought it was it could have been two separate films to be honest um so fundamentally I found it long I found it boring I found it unnecessarily convoluted lots of people needed to work on their accents and I'm going to give it two stars the reason I'm giving it two stars is because one and a half of those stars is literally for the portrayal of Edgar Allan Poe alone and the other half is for Christian Bale and the general atmosphere. But other than that, I can't say I would really recommend it. So that is two stars for the pale blue eye. And let's deep dive straight into our story this week. Now, we have to make a couple of things clear before we begin this story. This is arguably 
the most famous UFO case in history and has been referenced in pop culture for decades. So even if you don't know the ins and outs of this story, you'll know the basic general gist. Roswell, New Mexico is the home of the world's most infamous UFO crash. But here's the thing though. There is so much information out there about this case, so I've tried to stick as closely as possible to the facts as they are told and also to the more credible witness testimonies out there. There is one exception to that in this story and I will point it out when we get to it. There are literally hundreds of people who claim to have had some role in the Roswell crash and subsequent events. And obviously... Not everyone is telling the truth and not everybody is a reliable narrator. So there will also be people listening to this episode who will know this story better than I do. So if I do leave information out, please don't come for me. Um, I'm sorry, I did my best. In regards to the research for this episode, I need to give a massive shout out in particular to the BuzzFeed Unsolved episode, which gives a really good, concise, clear timeline. And also to the amazing research of Sarah Brooke. I got her in to do some research for me so that I had it from all different angles. All the links to the research will be in the description of this episode if you want to know more. One of the best places to start, though, is just to Google the timeline of the Roswell incident. And holy moly, do people have detailed timelines out there. So let's get into into it. Roswell, New Mexico is one of the most iconic geographical locations when it comes to UFOs, government cover-ups and alien activity. To begin this story we need to go all the way back to 1947 and 1947 was the year when UFO sightings really took off. In the last six months of 1947 there were 300 reported UFO sightings alone. And prior to this, UFO sightings were few and far between, whether they just didn't happen or they simply weren't recorded. The first well-known and widely reported UFO sighting happened in 1947, when Kenneth Arnold, a businessman and civilian pilot, reported seeing nine objects glowing a bright blue-white flying in a V formation over Washington's Mount Rainier. He estimated that their speed was around 1,700 miles per hour, and compared their motion to, and I quote, a saucer if you skip it across water. Hence the popularization of the term flying saucer. With this and advances in airborne military tech, people were definitely more in tune to what was happening in the skies above them. It was July the 2nd, 1947, and a storm was raging over the Foster Ranch in Roswell, New Mexico. The thunder rolled, and the lightning streaked across the sky, and in one brief illumination so quick that if you blinked you would have missed it, something hurtled to the ground. The sound of the crash being swallowed by the sound of thunder. In the morning after the storm had passed, the ranch was quiet and serene like it always was. William Ware Brazel, also known as Mac Brazel, was riding through Foster Ranch, checking on the herds of sheep that grazed on the vast expanses of land. He came across something strange. Marks in the earth that seemed to suggest that something had been dragged through the dirt. He kneeled and ran his fingers through the ground, and when he stood up he realised that spread out 200 yards in front of him was a crash site. A site that was covered in debris, smashed and smoked and clearly relatively recent. As Max stepped through the wreckage, he noticed that it was predominantly made up of a silvery material. It was unlike anything he had ever seen before. It was definitely metal, but had an almost fluid makeup. 
He tentatively picked some up and it was so, so thin that he could squeeze it into a ball and it would always return to its original shape. Try as he might, he was completely unable to figure out a way to damage or destroy it. Mac picked up some of the memory metal, as it would come to be known, and rode 20 miles to his nearest neighbour, desperate to share the discovery with someone. His neighbour, Loretta Proctor, who went on to give key witness testimony about this incident, described the strange debris as being a material that they had never seen before, and described its strange, fluid nature. She advised Mac that he needed to bring the crash site and the debris to the attention of the sheriff because she believed he had stumbled across a UFO. There was also the issue of the crash site being genuinely hazardous to the animals on the ranch, and it was very important that the debris was removed as soon as possible. Mac brought the debris that he had collected to the local sheriff, George Wilcox. Wilcox decided that the best course of action was to report the incident and the debris to the US Air Force at the Roswell Army Airfield. This is where the story becomes littered with names and military titles, but I promise I will do my best to make it as clear as possible who is who. Roswell was home to a large military base, the Roswell Army Airfield, and it was home to the 509th Bombardment Group, a team of elite bombers who were known for dropping atomic bombs. The airbase had opened in 1941 and remained open until 1967, and during its years of operation, it is alleged that nuclear testing occurred in the nearby New Mexico desert, which admittedly did nothing to dispel the air of mystery and conspiracy that surrounded the airbase. It's also very important to note that at this time in history, there were genuinely a lot of top-secret military operations in action that needed to be kept secret because of fears of Soviet attack. But back to Sheriff Wilcox. He realised that the crash site needed to be investigated and he contacted Colonel Butch Blanchard at the airbase and filled him in on Mac's findings. Colonel Blanchard alerted his supervisors, General Roger W. Ramey and Major Jesse Marcel. Major Jesse Marcel is probably the most important person in this story and his testimony is perhaps the reason that the story of Roswell didn't disappear into obscurity. Major Jesse Marcel was an intelligence officer and was tasked with investigating the crash site and recovering materials to ascertain what had crash landed on that ranch. He reported his findings to Colonel Blanchard and Blanchard instructed Lieutenant Walter Hott to issue a press release urgently in order to ensure that the most accurate version of events is released to the public. On the 8th of July, the Roswell Daily Record ran a front page article that stated a flying saucer was captured in Roswell by the Army Air Force. That headline on the front page is one of the most iconic headlines in UFO history. RAAF capture flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. The article states that the material was inspected by the intelligence office in Roswell before being flown to, and I quote, higher headquarters, but no further details of the saucer's construction or its appearance had been revealed. A couple, Mr. and Mrs. Wilmot, reported seeing a flying disc nearly a week earlier. They were sitting on their porch at 105 South Penn the Wednesday before when they both saw a large glowing object zooming out of the sky, headed northwest at a high rate speed. They estimated seeing the saucer for about 40 seconds and thinking that it was going four to 500 miles per hour. It was oval in shape, 
like two inverted saucers faced mouth to mouth or like two old type washbowls placed together in the same fashion. It glowed like light was coming from the inside and appeared to be five feet or so in size according to the couple's description. All of this is mentioned in that very first article from the 8th of July. General Roger W. Ramey saw the article and ordered that the debris be brought to him in Fort Worth in Texas, along with Major Jesse Marcel, so that he can examine the debris himself thoroughly. The following day, the story drastically changed. A new newspaper report was issued, and it said... An examination by the army revealed last night that mysterious objects found on a lonely New Mexico ranch was a harmless high-altitude weather balloon, not a grounded flying disc. The bundle of tinfoil, broken wood beams and rubber remnant were sent here yesterday by Army Air Transport in the wake of reports that it was a flying disc. Ramey insisted that the material was just the crushed remains of a ray wind target used to determine the direction of velocity of winds at high altitudes. In the newspaper article, there are pictures of Major Jesse Marcel examining the remnants of a weather balloon. The next day, the rancher, Mac Brazel, issued a statement to the newspaper in which he said that he regretted talking about the crash at all and that he was being harassed and that the wreckage was nothing but tinfoil, tough paper, rubber and sticks. The flying saucer fever around the country dissipated as nerves were settled and questions were seemingly answered. And then there was silence. The story of Roswell disappeared until 1978, when Stanton Friedman, a physicist and UFO researcher, interviewed someone about the case and blew the whole story wide open. He interviewed none other than Major Jesse Marcel, and this time, Jesse Marcel vowed to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Prompted by his interview with Major Jesse Marcel, Friedman decided to interview more and more witnesses and very quickly realised that the story just didn't add up. Something wasn't right. For many, the answers did not make sense, and the behaviour of the military in Roswell was incredibly suspicious. For one, their story did not match the accounts of multiple witnesses who reported seeing an unidentified flying object that did not resemble a weather balloon, who touched ultra-lightweight and super-strong material found at the crash site, and even bodies of dead grey aliens being transported by the military. The Roswell incident is synonymous with government cover-up, conspiracy and confusion. This isn't a streamlined story about a UFO that fell to earth and that was that. They rarely are that simple. But Roswell takes this to a whole new level. Researchers and investigators have devoted their lives to uncovering the mystery of that 1947 crash. They still have very few answers, at least answers that are accepted by the widespread public, the media and the government. Those invested in the Roswell incident believe it is the best chance to make a case of extraterrestrial visitation. But in order to make this episode slightly more streamlined, we're going to focus on two main theories. The object that crashed was a weather balloon, or the object that crashed was an alien spacecraft. Repeatedly, government officials reported that the object that crashed just outside of Roswell was a weather balloon, this has been stated time and time again. But interestingly, 
1994, the Air Force released an official report in which they admitted that there had indeed been a military cover-up around the Roswell incident, but not what you might think. It was a weather balloon, but a product of a top-secret project called Project Mogul, which was headed up by Dr. Maurice Ewing. The idea was simple. The military could successfully detect the sound of explosion from hundreds of miles away under the water, so surely they could do the same thing from the air. The idea was to create huge balloons that could detect explosions and thus give the US military intel on Soviet nuclear testing. Project Mogul balloons were huge silvery affairs and were tested out all over the US and also tested out over New Mexico in 1947. This report in 1994 had been printed due to the request of New Mexico Congressman Steve Schiff. The audit officially stated that the crash was indeed a Project Mogul balloon and that the reports of a flying saucer had just been an overreaction. Which is all well and good. But all of the files from Roswell Army Airfield from January 1947 to October 1947 had been destroyed. And no one knew who gave that order or why. And then there is the other theory. The theory that something alien crash-landed in that ranch and that the government covered it up. Believers of this theory posit that an alien craft was blown into millions of pieces upon its crash to Earth. Before the military arrived to pick up the pieces, the crash site was visited by locals and other curious ranchers. Investigators believe that pieces of that wreckage must have been taken by those who arrived first. Those pieces could be invaluable pieces of evidence that prove the craft was extraterrestrial. Scores of military personnel also had access to that material. The debris found at the site is most often described as consisting of several different types. Smaller pieces were very thin and lightweight but extremely strong. They looked like foil or aluminium on the surface but behaved differently than any material elements recorded on Earth. Other pieces were larger, but still lightweight and incredibly strong. Small eye beams were collected that looked like balsa wood struts with strange symbols embossed along their inner faces. This, of course, is all according to eyewitness testimonies. No actual material has ever been publicly released and confirmed. This memory metal material that looked like aluminium but could be bent and crinkled and returned to its pristine form even after being damaged, is one of the most sought-after pieces of evidence in the entire Roswell case. Multiple witnesses have claimed to interact with the material, but it too has never been publicly proven to exist. At first, the military claimed to have recovered a flying disc. Within hours, they retracted their story and declared it was a weather balloon. But through the course of the decades of investigations, researchers have collected more than 600 witness accounts associated with the incident that support the first claim of a flying saucer. Shortly after the official press release announcing that it was simply a weather balloon, the rancher who discovered the debris, Mac Brazel, was detained by the US Army Air Force for four days during the material cleanup of the site. He was denied access to a phone, was given an army physical and was subjected to rigorous questioning and intimidation while under house arrest at the Roswell AAF. After he retracted his statement and was released, 
his neighbour stated that he suddenly bought a brand new pickup truck, moved and began a new business. Other extreme security measures were put in place surrounding the incident. Armed guards encircled the ranch and special unscheduled flights arrived from Washington DC with additional units arriving from other air bases all over the country. Supposedly, unscheduled flights from Roswell transported wreckage or bodies to various laboratories and military bases all over the country. Pilot Ben James was a pilot to Major General Lawrence C. Craigie at Wright Field, where the crash debris was allegedly sent. He flew the general to Roswell to visit the crash site, and then flew him directly to Washington, D.C. to meet President Truman, and a few months later, General Craigie founded Project Sign, which was the first official U.S. government investigation into UFOs. In addition to all of this strange military activity, various calls were made to prevent radio interviews, and FBI telex conflicted with the retracted military press release, confiscation of documents that supported their original claims of a flying saucer debris, and multiple first-hand military and civilian witnesses who actually witnessed the crash came forward to tell their stories. Multiple first-hand military and civilian witnesses have given sworn testimony regarding the bodies recovered at the crash site, and last but not least, many witnesses had reported being physically threatened by the US military. Children were terrorised, parents were threatened that their children would be killed if they mentioned anything about the true nature of the incident, according to witnesses. Locals in the area reported that their houses were turned over by the military personnel who were searching for remnants of the debris from the crash site. Local radio DJ Frank Joyce of KGFL Radio had been reporting on the case on his radio station. When he came off air, he was handed a telephone and told that the Pentagon was on the line. He was warned to cease all reporting on the Roswell incident or else the radio station license would be removed with immediate effect. Frank Joyce didn't believe it until he then received a phone call from Senator Dennis Chavez and the FCC warning of the same thing. And while I won't go into the testimony of every single civilian eyewitness, believe me, there are lots. It is really the testimony of Major Jesse Marcel all those years later that changed things in the hunt for the truth about Roswell. It was Marcel's duty to identify the source of the wreckage that fell on that hot night in July of 1947. According to his testimony, while aboard a B-29 aircraft, he held a box of recovered debris on his lap. Master Sergeant Robert Porter then loaded onto the plane, accompanied with four brown paper wrapped boxes. The plane was headed for Wright Field in Ohio, but made a preliminary stop in Fort Worth. After landing, Marcel handed the box of debris directly to General Ramey. When Marcel returned to the room, the box he handed to Ramey was gone and the remains of a mangled weather balloon were strewn on the floor. Marcel was ordered to pose with pieces of a balloon and kite wreckage, supposedly the Roswell debris. A single reporter from the Fort Worth Star-Telegram was present and took two photographs. General Ramey, according to Marcel, ordered Marcel to spend the night in Fort Worth and not to speak to anyone about the incident. The next morning, the newspaper ran the article stating that the wreckage was nothing more than a weather balloon. 
In his later interview, Major Jesse Marcel stated that what he saw at that crash site in Roswell was absolutely not a weather balloon. He said, and I quote, when he was speaking about the material, it felt like you had nothing in your hands. It wasn't any thicker than the foil out of a pack of cigarettes, but the thing about it that got me is that you couldn't even bend it, you couldn't dent it. Even a sledgehammer would bounce off it. I knew that I had never seen anything like that before. It was not anything from this earth that I'm quite sure of. Being an intelligence officer, I was familiar with just about all materials used in aircraft and or air travel. This was nothing like that. It could not have been. All I could do was keep my mouth shut and General Ramey was the one who told the newsmen what it was and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, we both knew differently. But one of the most puzzling pieces of the Roswell incident is one that I haven't even really mentioned yet, and it's the number of eyewitness accounts of supposed alien bodies recovered from the crash site. Allegedly, the crash debris and the bodies of aliens were sent to Wright Field Air Base to be studied. According to the International UFO Museum and Research Center website, Glenn Dennis, a young mortician working at Ballard Funeral Home, received some curious calls one afternoon from the RAAF morgue. The base's mortuary officer was trying to get hold of some small hermetically sealed coffins and also wanted to know how to preserve bodies that had been exposed to the elements for a few days and avoid contaminating the tissue. Dennis later said that evening he drove to the base hospital where he saw large pieces of wreckage with strange engravings on one of the pieces sticking out of the back of a military ambulance. He entered the hospital and was visiting with a nurse he knew when suddenly he was threatened by military police and forced to leave. The next day, Dennis met with the nurse who told him about the bodies discovered and the wreckage and drew pictures of them on a prescription pad. Within a few days, she was transferred to England and her whereabouts remain unknown. All of the military personnel and civilians who claimed to have seen the alien bodies all reported the same physiology, three to four foot tall, large heads, large eyes, holes for a nose and slits for mouths. Lieutenant Walter Hott, Brigadier General Arthur E. Exxon and Tech Sergeant Herschel Grace all claimed to have physically seen the bodies to name but a few. In 1997, the US government released a report called the Roswell Report Case Closed, in which they stated that in the mid-1950s, silicone dummies were used to test parachutes over New Mexico, and they suggested that this accounted for the apparent bodies found at the Roswell crash site. Colonel John Haynes believed that in their testimonies, witnesses were mixing up the two incidents, and therefore the legend of the alien bodies at Roswell had been born. But it doesn't end there. Sergeant William C. Ennis worked at Hangar P3 and believed it was a weather balloon. But in 2008, he admitted that actually he thought it was a spaceship and they could never understand how it flew as it had no engine. But it did. In the 1980s, a memo from September the 15th, 1950 surfaced with a conversation between physicist Robert I. Sarbacher and other government scientists. In the memo, he references a failed reverse engineering project, and I quote, All we know is that we didn't make them, 
and it's pretty certain that they didn't originate on Earth. The Roswell incident is without a doubt one of the most prominent UFO cases in popular culture. Countless film and television endeavours have covered the confusing case and tackled to tell the story of countless witnesses who believe the US government lied about what was really recovered that night. In 1950, the first major motion pictures featuring flying saucers were made in Hollywood. The imagery used in those films resembled the visuals described in the Roswell incident. In 1991, the International UFO Museum and Research Centre opened in Roswell. The museum was founded by Glenn Dennis, Walter Hott and Mary Little. According to their website, the museum was organised to inform the public about what came to be known as the Roswell Incident and is dedicated to the collection and preservation of materials and information in written, audio and visual formats that are related to the 1947 Roswell Incident and other unexplained phenomena relating to UFO research. The questions of Roswell will most likely never be answered. But that does not stop the heaps of UFO researchers still devoting time and energy to uncovering the truth. Not gonna lie, listeners. You hear this? That's the sound of me drinking a gin to try and get through this because I don't I don't know I don't know what to tell you. This research has honestly blown my tiny mind. Like literally blown my mind. I know that people listening to this are gonna be like, what about Frank Kaufman? What about all these other people who are involved? As I said at the beginning, I couldn't include every single tiny bit of information. I tried to include what was important in as clear a narrative form as I possibly could. And I hope that I did that. But something happened in that crash site, man. (laughs) Something happened there. I don't know what it was, but it happened. I did say that there was one person in this story, one witness that I included that was deemed to be not the most reliable of witnesses. And that was Glenn Dennis, our uh, funeral home man who got the phone call to be like, how do you embalm a body? Can you bring me two small coffins? Apparently his testimony (laughs) did not stand up to scrutiny whatsoever. And his story changed multiple times. He then went on to found the museum though. So, you know, who knows? Maybe he's a changed man. And I did mention as well, Frank Kaufman just now. Frank Kaufman is one of the people that is often referenced in regards to the Roswell incident. He claims that prior to Mac Brazel finding the wreckage, him and some other military personnel had found the wreckage. They had found these bodies. They found five little bodies and he was firsthand in, you know, transporting those bodies, etc, etc. Turns out that Frank Kaufman is actually probably not the most reliable witness either. Because he was found to be forging a lot of documents, allegedly, that seemed to prove, in inverted commas, his um, role in the military at that time. So that's why I didn't include his testimony either, because I thought, oh, I don't really know how true it is. And fundamentally, we don't know how true any of this is. And all of the Roswell conspiracy is based around witness testimonies from lots of different people. It is crazy how many different witness testimonies there are and from such an array of different people from like top ranking military personnel right to civilians. So like Loretta Proctor was Mac Brazel's neighbour. Her and her family witnessed the debris. Like they witnessed the um, crazy metal and she was the one that was like, whoa, I think you found a UFO. I think you need to like talk to somebody about this. There was the... um, emergency services in the area there was a fireman's daughter 
who reported that she opened the door to some military personnel one day. They asked her if she had seen the material and she said, yeah, actually, I, I touched some of it, I held it in my hand. And they proceeded to threaten her and tell her that she was never going to tell anybody that story. The um, lovely Kit and Rory over This Paranormal Life, I think it was like episode 61 and 62 of This Paranormal Life, they covered the Roswell incident and they included lots of uh, lots of witness testimony in their audio so that's a really good those are two really good episodes to listen to if you want to listen to the story in more detail and like there's lots of people who were like yeah this this happened and something crashed and we think it was alien and the government want us to cover it up i love the idea as well that <laughs> mac brazel like retracted his testimony and was like no 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 i wish i'd never said anything about it now i'm being harassed about it while he's driving around in a brand new solid gold pickup truck, you know, he's pretty much giving the interview wearing a crown. And they're like, wow, where'd you, where'd you get that crown, Mac? And he's like, what, what crown? The government didn't give me loads of, what? Nobody gave me loads of money. What are you talking about? Uh, nobody told me I needed to be quiet. And there were as well some strange parallels that I thought were interesting, which probably were important to be pointed out. Firstly, was that the, craft or the debris seems to have lots of reports of having like strange symbols all over it like some people described it as being like hieroglyphics type things other people described it as just being like symbols or pictures that they couldn't decipher that same thing happened in the Rendlesham Forest incident where he said that there was strange symbols or hieroglyphics all over the craft also happened in our artistic poltergeist story where hieroglyphics appeared on the plants and it happened in that listener story where like symbols and words and hieroglyphics appeared on the roses. Just wanted to put those those links out there. Secondly, I don't know if anybody has heard the story. It's a really famous Art Bell story. So Art Bell was, was it Coast to Coast AM? Was that what it was called? It was like a, a phone-in show, right? I, I think about the paranormal. And in one of the phone-ins, he got a call from somebody who claimed to be working in a military base and claimed a load of stuff about like aliens and like really, it's a really horrible phone call to listen to because whatever is going on for the person who made the phone call, whether they were in a state of psychosis or whether it was, you know, they had genuinely seen these things, whatever, they were clearly incredibly distressed and it's a really upsetting phone call to listen to. However, in the middle of the phone call, the entire radio station, all the power, everything, backup generator, everything goes down. Like everything gets shut down while this person is talking. And Art Bell comes back online and he says, oh, this has never happened before. This has never happened before in the history of my doing radio. I don't know what's happened. Everything's shut down. They couldn't figure out why it happened. They got everything back online and got the show back up and running. It was really weird though. And the implication obviously was that for some unknown reason or somehow the military or the government or whatever managed to shut them down while they were talking to this man about all this weird testing and alien shit that was going on at this military base. Now I'm not going to go back through every single detail of the evidence that I put forward in this but I will say that the government and the military personnel have not helped with this situation because it feels like they have massively tried to overexplain, and that the behaviour around the incident itself seems to have been really very suspicious, very aggressive behaviour towards the locals, etc., which really does nothing to dispel the rumours. Equally, 
all of the subsequent stuff where they released that report saying, yeah, you know, there was something that crashed, but it was a military balloon. Yeah, fine. That's absolutely fine. And then they were like, yeah, well, the thing with the bodies, that was probably, you know, all those parachute dummies that we were testing, you know, 15 years later or whatever. And people just got those two things mixed up. Like, why are you commenting on the bodies? Just say nothing. That's like, if it's, I would imagine that if I was a military personnel, right? And you're dealing with all sorts of military shit, like a couple of crackpots saying that aliens crash landed in New Mexico would be the least of my worries. And I wouldn't be falling over myself to try and disprove it. I'd just be like, yeah, it just didn't happen. The end. Like it was a military balloon. But yet they're falling over themselves to try and disprove it. And seemingly, apparently, falling over themselves to try and keep people quiet. And I just don't really get it. I don't get why they would need to do that. It seems like such overkill for such an inconsequential story. And I absolutely understand that at the time there was lots of military tech being created. There was lots of serious, genuine, justified worry about like Soviet uh, military air vehicles in infiltrating US airspace. There was lots of crazy shit going on at that point, right? And I, I do understand that. And I understand that the US military and all militaries around the world were desperately trying to keep their own tech a secret. So therefore, if they were creating these big old military balloons to like you know be able to hear explosions or whatever of course they would want to keep that a secret because they want to keep all their tactics a secret from other military intel right i i do get all of that completely and i do fundamentally believe that the military is always working on aircraft and various tech that we don't know about that most people in the military don't know about and that is like probably would blow our minds if we knew about it in general But it does interest me that there's a lot of talk about reverse engineering, which is very much a thing in the military, especially if you get your hands on other countries' tech, you try and reverse engineer how it was made, right? And that memo that's like, we tried to reverse engineer it, we couldn't do it, we couldn't figure out how it was working. That guy was like, we couldn't figure out how this weather balloon, in inverted commas, was was able to move around without an engine. It also baffles me with this story, and I apologise, I'm very aware that I'm jumping from like point to point. It baffles me in this story that the bodies, the these alleged bodies aren't the focal point of the story. Well, how are they not the focal point of the story? These bodies that apparently were taken out of the wreckage. That's the bit of the story, actually, that I probably believe the least. Here's my thoughts, right? I think that we know categorically something crashed in in Roswell at that time. It was some sort of aircraft. It crashed down to earth. We know that categorically. I've just realised, by the way, that I'm sitting in my office and my street lights aren't working and it's incredibly dark. And the only light that I can see is the really spooky light in the gothic window across the road and the flashing lights of aircraft in the sky. So brilliant. Actually going to be haunted by this story. But I believe that something crashed in Roswell. That's a fact. I believe that the military believed it was some sort of Soviet tech or military tech and freaked out due to the potential of spies, etc. And they made an absolute balls of trying to cover up the story and therefore created much more intrigue than was really necessary. Like, I think this all could have been avoided if the military had handled it better. And actually, what has happened is the military have subsequently created their own firestorm about this story without necessarily meaning to. When actually, I think it probably was about military tech. If someone turned around to me and said, you know what, it actually 100% was aliens. I'd be down for it because this is a great story. I'd be like, absolutely. Okay, 
I take it back, Len Dennis. I take it back that you were a liar. You, you, you were right. It was aliens all along. And I'd be like, Mac Brazel, I'm glad you sold out for your solid gold pickup truck, okay? But the story was true all along. I don't know. I don't know. I keep, I keep flipping in this story. I keep going in two minds. Like, as I was going through the different witness testimonies, I was like, oh my God, yes, absolutely. It was definitely aliens. There was no other explanation for it. But then I'm like, mm, was it aliens though? Or did the military just overreact to trying to protect some military tech and therefore made everyone think it was aliens? And we do know, I know we've looked at this before in previous episodes, sometimes it benefits the military for people to be like, whoa, it's aliens, it's a UFO, rather than highlight what tech they're working on. So we've all got our tinfoil hats very firmly on for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Let me know what your theories are about the Roswell conspiracy. I am dying to know. If you are desperate to send in your own spooky story, you can do so by sending it to Podcast at gmail.com. You can also check out the website com. And if you want some extra juicy content, you can sign up to Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash Stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free and on that note i shall see you next time